Hey, Rejects. I'm Brent. And I'm Dave. Welcome back to Rejected Central. And uh, I'm super excited, Dave. Guess why? Super excited. How come? Well, today we have the second listener-driven episode where our people out there have reached out to tell us their stories. And not only that, they're coming on the show today. That's amazing. They are here. Oh my gosh. Well, here virtually. And okay, actually, this gets complicated because I can't say they're here virtually because one of them was actually in studio, which is very cool. So it was a hybrid model? <laughs> We're doing the hybrid We delivered hybrid a hybrid model. model this time. I love most of all, I mean, we have a lot of fun preparing the topics and yeah. inviting guests and everything, but it is so exciting when our listeners respond and say, I've got a story that elevates the rejection experience. And that is really, I, I'm hoping to do more and more of that. So please keep sending us your story. So guess who we have today? Who do we have today? Two lovely, lovely rejects. Mm-hmm. First up is fellow writer, Holly Gattery. Mm-hmm. She's going to talk about her experience as a person of mixed race who, in her words, has been rejected for not being mixed enough. Wow. Yes. And then next is actor and producer Sarah Weber. Uh, she's going to talk about a particularly bad review that she got for one of her plays, but she's also going to talk, more importantly, about what she did about it. Amazing. Holly Gattery is the author of Rebellion Box, which, in my humble opinion, might be a contender for my top 10 titles ever. It's really great. I just love that title. Um, And Fuse, which, as of this morning, when I saw it on Facebook, has won the Canadian Book Club Award for Memoir and Nonfiction. Congratulations, and welcome to Rejected Central. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. You reached out out a little while ago uh, to say you have... Uh, some stories and thank you of course because we're always looking for those stories for our listeners as well um what stood out to me from your email uh and you're talking about uh being biracial and and of mixed heritage but the words i'm not mixed enough to be mixed stood out to me tell me a little bit about that yeah so i'm iranian and i'm white you know just like the average mixed cracker kind of white um you know some nor you know some norwegian in there english or scottish you know just a mixed bag of whiteness and you know very evenly split 50 50 and um when i was published pews my memoir you know it mostly got a lot of support but every now and then there'd be someone who you know got into my dms or contacted me or tweeted me to tell me that i'm not I'm not mixed race because Iran, according to these people, is Aryan and therefore white. I mean, and nobody wants to be called Aryan, or I think almost nobody wants that label on them. Uh, And of course, this is a myth. Um, It's a myth that is um, explored beautifully in the book, The Limits of Whiteness. And I think everyone should read it. It's about... uh, you know, the lived experience of Iranian Americans versus their census label, which is white. Um, So there's, you know, this feeling, again, of not being mixed enough to be mixed. And while I don't necessarily look white phenotypically, I'm what a lot of people call ethnically ambiguous. You you don't know, but you you really just don't know what I am. I don't think she's white, but I don't know what she is. So when Fuse was published, I got a lot of really um, just dispiriting feedback about not being mixed enough to be mixed, not being 
you know, Iranian enough to be Iranian, not being white enough to be white. It was really just this experience of feeling delegitimized. Like I have to sit here as a human being and live my life being uh, the subject of racism and really ignorant things said to me because my father is Iranian. But then when it comes time for me to speak about living that experience, I'm told that I can't, that I have no right to. You're not even you enough to be you. Exactly. And um, despite what, you know, you might check on a census form, um, the fact of the matter is most Iranians don't go through this world as having a white experience. Um, and one thing that happened relatively recently um, was uh, somebody posted on Twitter asking if Iranians are white, which is a really ignorant, stupid question, but it was asked. And lots of people replied, the ma overwhelming majority said, absolutely not. What are you talking about? Hmm. Um, there were some Iranian people who identified as white. And there were some people married to Iranians who were like, oh, my partner does identify as white. So, of course, there's so much going on there and there's a lot to unpack. But uh, I didn't say anything because I was just annoyed and, you know, arguing with someone on social media is just a waste of your life. So True I story. don't do yep, it. Absolutely. Yeah. And then the, the um, October 7th attack happened. And as usual... Um, you know, when it was when it came out that Iran had funded the attack, the Iranian government, not the Iranian people. I'm trying to make a very clear distinction between, you know, citizens of a country and their governments, not the same. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, when that came out, all I had to go back. I had to go back to that thread because I saved it because I'm toxic to myself like that. <laughs> and I all I wrote was, how white am I now? Because. Everybody was slamming Iran. And suddenly that that I'm going to I'm using this in quotes, honorary whiteness is stripped every time Iran does something that people don't like. You know, you're 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 you can be white and, you know, Iranians have this like passing privilege until they do. The Iranian government does something ridiculous, which or, or dangerous. And it does that a lot. So. I found I, I I just had to write that. I was like, oh, I I shouldn't, but I was like, I feel like there's not enough. Just I, I sometimes I feel like I just don't say enough. Like, at what point is my silence just being complacent to everything happening around me? Sure. And it's the same with the nine eleven. Suddenly, Iranians weren't so harmless anymore. Right. You know, when any time anything happens. It, when, you know, Iran bombed that plane. Um, I, I, remember, I don't even remember what the outcome of that was or the reasoning or anything like that. But again, Iranians were suddenly really not white then. Hmm. Hmm. And having my experience as someone, you know, mixed race, mixed culture, when I come forward and try to talk about this and people, people tell me that, you know, I just, I, I'm delegitimized, that, you know, I, I have to like suffer through all this racism and because I'm a woman, sexism and all this garbage. But then as soon as I try to talk about it, say, no, we're not going to give you space because you're not enough. What did people do in response to the when you went back into it by saying, how white am I now? Like, what was the response to that? Has anybody engaged? People liked it. 
a lot of people liked it and some people like was like lol like understood it or exactly but i think the people who would have disagreed with me didn't understand what i was saying because i didn't get any negative feedback which i'd expect but i i didn't get it and i think it's because the people who understood what i was saying are the people who live in the same space as me but the people who wouldn't understand what i'm saying would just be like what is she talking about how white am i now like because I, I didn't reference the attack i didn't reference anything i just wrote those words so if people didn't know the iran iranian government hamas connection if they were aware then what if we'll come right over their heads even though at times you don't feel mixed enough to feel mixed you're feeling all of this quite fully exactly exactly and you know i mean there is a lot of iranians are incredibly warm and welcoming but i think language is such an important part of being part of a culture and part of a ethnicity and the fact of the matter is my father didn't raise us speaking farsi so i can swear and i know terms of endearment and if i'm in a conversation and people are you know if i'm outside a conversation listening to people speaking farsi i can usually understand what they're saying or the gist of the conversation but i'm not very fluent in it even though i am teaching myself now so there is a point where you know i'll go to a nowruz bazaar and which is the iranian new year in march and you know somebody will start speaking farsi to me and as soon as i don't speak it back it's like this shutdown that i'm not iranian enough because i don't speak the language and of course language is really important mm-hmm. but i don't i don't speak it so i can sometimes feel excluded by iranians but by the same measure there's many iranians who don't feel that way and who are incredibly warm and welcoming but i i definitely feel usually if my dad's beside me when they find out i can't speak farsi they're like what did you teach her what's wrong with you you know all this stuff but it really makes me feel like an outsider again but i'm again i'm not white either so it's it's like i can't claim anything and i'm living in this space of just do people just want me to disappear like i don't i don't know what people want from me oh well, and you're getting rejected not only from your own self and how critical and hard you are on yourself wanting to do better wanting to be better learning the language for example that external rejection of who you are as a person um has been quite formative i would imagine it it has been because i mean i didn't speak the language but i grew up in a home that was and again this is all discussed in fuse where my father was a typical alpha iranian man where what he said had went and it's not that my mom didn't push back sometimes or try it's it's not that it's just that you know really i grew up in this culture where you know while i was grew up in canada there were a lot of values that i was being you know expected to embody that weren't reflective of western society so you know people say i'm not iranian enough to be iranian it's like i i grew up in a stricter house than some people i know who grew up in iran hmm. you know what i mean like it sadness that you know I'm being denied access to part of myself because of because I don't fit some arbitrary external label and you know being mixed for a lot of people is a very challenging uh a very challenging thing to be but it's, I think for people who again are just this ethnic ethnically ambiguous when we don't really stand out as one or the other it can be in, even more challenging I mean I, I there's a re- one of the reasons I don't even stand out so much as Iranian is because I, I had a nose job when I was 16 because I was tired of the comments 
and being so identifiable as something other than white because I grew up in a very uh, whitewashed area and, uh, you know, was had a lot of racist comments thrown at me and a lot of ignorant comments thrown at me. So I, I really actually, when I was younger, tried to look less Iranian. Like I had cosmetic surgery, so I wouldn't be as identifiable. I always say no if people are like, oh, you're Iranian? I, I didn't know what you were, but I wouldn't have guessed that. I'm always like, if I had my original nose, and if I hadn't plucked my eyebrows because of Drew Barrymore in the 1990s, you would have no problem knowing exactly who I am. But I've cosmetically altered my face to look like I was less of something. Wow. it's uh, it's It really sounds like you are continually uh, just being hard on yourself. Uh, maybe that's not the right way to say it, but you're continually pushing yourself in all directions here. You're. It's not a comfortable thing for you even sometimes. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's incredibly fair to say. I mean, Fuse, the memoir started because I was told by a therapist that there's a document prevalence of eating disorders and body dysmorphia in biracial women. And I was there being treated for eating disorders and body dysmorphia yeah. because I cannot reconcile the way I look with who I'm supposed to be and who I really am. And, you know, growing up between these competing expectations of two cultures, like the Iranian standard of beauty and femininity, at least when I was a teenager in the, you know, in the nineties were very different than what I was being told I should look like and be like here. So I was being held to these two competing expectations in, like inside my house and then externally by society and the people I went to school with. And so, yeah, I mean, I am very hard on myself because I mean, I'm constantly just trying to find peace and ease with who I am. And so being rejected when I, you know, say, this is who I am, this is what I've been through. It's just absolutely, um, you know, devastating. But I'm getting, I'm 42, and I'm getting better at just at that wonderful stage that a lot of women say they go through of just not giving a shit anymore. <laughs> like, I'm getting there. Sometimes I care more, but, you know, think I would, I'd never be able to write Fuse now. Because when I wrote Fuse, I was younger, I was newly sober, it took over 10 years to write. So some of these things were written when I was in my 20s. Um, and even though it only came out a few years ago, it took a really long time to write. I wouldn't be able to capture that again, because then I was just feeling so raw and so hurt. And that's it, unfortunately. The memory card we use in our recording device to capture the conversation pooped out and didn't get the last 30 or 45 seconds of our chat. Our apologies to Halle for that, of course, and to you, the listener, uh, because you didn't get to hear the rest of what she had to say. Um, we'll definitely have to get her back on the show. This would be uh, an apology of sorts, but of course, she also said lots of really interesting things that got me thinking about a further episode anyway. Sarah Weber is a thespian in the truest sense of the word. Playwright, writer, library, dabbler, and relocated Alabamian. Mm -hmm. I said that correctly, good. Mm -hmm. um, from Alabama IA, am I allowed to say that? You can say whatever you want. Oh, wonderful. That's fine. Welcome. Thank you, it's great to be here. It's great to have you. Thanks for reaching out with uh, a story. Mm -hmm. And thank you also to all the listeners who are going to be reaching out with more stories. We are always looking for them. This is our dream to have stories from listeners about rejection and how mm. they've sort of elevated the rejection experience. All right, that was an awkward segue. So you <laughs> you reached out about a rejection in your life that involves 
one of your plays, mm -hmm. a certain newspaper, mm -hmm. and the thing that every artist uh, secretly dreads, yes. or publicly sometimes, mm -hmm. the bad review. Yes. Tell correct. us about it. Um, well, I am very familiar with rejection, Brent, because uh, I used to audition for play after play after play in Toronto and never got a part. So I started writing my own shows. That's kind of my intro into the one woman show world. And uh, one summer I decided to enter a bunch of fringe theater festivals. So I think I did Toronto, London, and Vancouver that year. So I flew out to Vancouver with my little one woman show on the roof, which is the story of my mother's battle with lung cancer. Mm -hmm. And um, it had done fine in Toronto. It had done pretty well in London. So I was, I was hopeful for Vancouver. Um, my first two shows were small audiences, but I thought they went okay. And with fringe festivals, you actually go to the business office and collect your money after the show. If you made a few bucks. So I, oh, I can only dream of making <laughs> a few bucks look? from my art. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I went to collect my $10 or whatever. Um, <laughs> and when I came out of the office, I noticed a bulletin board with a, uh, like a newspaper article and my photo attached to it. And it was big. Like it wasn't a tiny photo. It was like, you know, a big photo. And I was like, what, what is this? And my cousin, Diane, who lives out there was there with me. And she was like, let's look at it later. Let's go grab lunch. I'm starving. I'm starving. I'm like, no, are you, are you I got to look now. This is like all my Christmases come at once. Yes. All my dreams are coming true. Let's go yes. look. Yes. Yes. It's all about me. I was so excited. And I start <laughs> reading and realize why Diane was like, let's read this later because it, they not only, can I say the name of the newspaper or should we keep it? Probably? Oh, it's up to you. Well, it was the Vancouver Sun. I think if we're <laughs> talking about the Sun, we're going to have, I think we basically have a grain of salt with a lot of things. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Good I think to that's know. fine. Well, uh, they basically um, ripped my show apart. They hated it so much. They, they not only complained about my show, but they complained about my director, my dramaturg, my parents for raising me. Like it wow. was the, it was the most heartbreaking review. So it wasn't sort of an ambiguously kind of negative thing. It was full on it was, negative. Yes. And, and it's an emo, it's a dramedy, right? It's drama and comedy, but they were like, Sarah needs therapy before she gets back on the stage to deal with her shit. And I mean, this is years after my mom had passed. So I, I, I had dealt with my shit. I mean, if I was to do a show right after my mom died, I would just like lay on the stage and bawl. Sure. And that's not what it was. It was stories, right? So um, I did what every good artist does in that position. I went and drank a jug of sangria and mm -hmm. then um, vowed to myself that that was the last review I'd ever read. Okay, so this is this is yes. actually why you're here. Yes, because... I, bought the, I should just tell you, I bought the paper, yeah. cut out the article, laminated it, Put it in one of my keepsake boxes, and it's just a reminder. I may actually get you to send me a copy. <laughs> okay. um, but the reason you're here is because of that thing that you said you were going to do in the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, and not that artists are unfamiliar with reading bad reviews and saying, ah, I'm never going to read another review. Um, that's, that's how you've chosen to what we consider elevating the rejection experience. You're mm -hmm. making an active choice to do something with that rejection that makes it more than just a no that you wallow in for a while. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm glad to hear that you did wallow a little bit. Oh, that's yeah, great. No, nope, no, nope, absolutely. Very human. <laughs> um, all right. Well, how did it go? Have you kept your promise? Have you? I have kept my promise. Wow. I, um, so Good for you. See, I'm... I can't, I've said it. I know then, lots of writers who have said it, and we all fall off the wagon. Yeah, 
Well, I have been in shows since and people will come in backstage and say, hey, we got a great review. And then I, I hear, okay, we've got a great review. Yes, I will hear about it. Let me hear about it and I'll read it if they hand it to me. But if if it's not handed to me with the words, it's a great review. If they're like, oh, we got, I'm like, mm, you know, fingers in the ears, no, 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 because- I like you, how you're curating your reviews. <laughs> <laughs> Because you can't trust the good reviews and you can't trust no, the bad reviews. No, same thing in the writing life. Right? Absolutely. You have to do yeah. what you're going to do anyway. Yeah. And I I can't believe how much it affected me. I, I thought it was like, you know, I'd been touring the show for months and I was like, oh, I'm confident in this. Yeah. I mean, they, in the theater world, uh, a bad review, they you know, they say like, any review is a good review. Not true at no, the Fringe Festival. No, no. If you get a bad review, people don't come. Right. And so I think my next show had four people in the front row. Right. Yeah. It just went down from there. And when the Fringe Festival ended, the Cancer Society actually picked up the show. And I had a nice longevity with the show with them touring their conferences and stuff despite the review despite the review but, which is good that's a nice outcome which, which is a great outcome but yeah. i can't i can't put myself through it i have to believe in what i write and, well, good and for i you. read people's good. words and i can't yeah. oh look at me i'm so great <laughs> now i'll acknowledge uh, you know to be fair to the people who have been nice to me and to my writing that there have been actual reviews that i I can trust yeah. like good reviews sure. and, and some bad ones th mm -hmm. that were really honest that I can trust. But generally speaking, I totally hear what you're saying. The subjective nature of who's writing it, the moment they're writing it in, the mood they're feeling, mm -hmm. the person sitting next to them, their yeah. own historical and life baggage, what they bring to any situation. Yeah. Um, it's true. There is, there ha we have to acknowledge that subjectivity, yeah. don't we? To totally. And, and maybe he was triggered by something in the show. Yeah. Like this, this columnist, right? And I, but at oh, the time, oh, I definitely have to get a copy now. Okay, <laughs> I'll find it. But at the time, I just was like, this is too painful for me. This is not helpful. Yeah. So, well, that's and that's we were just chatting before we started recording about about why I started this podcast, and for me, it was about just finding a little bit more joy mm -hmm. uh, in the complex meaning of that word, mm -hmm. not the I just want to be happy yeah. all the time. <laughs> no, I just wanted to find something that brought me a little bit of spiritual goodness mm -hmm. you know made use of my gifts and all of yeah. that and i think theater for you is probably functioning in that way too mm -hmm. don't go for the things that don't bring you joy well exactly i right? mean it's hard yeah arts are hard yes there's disappointment yeah. there's conflict there's you know what there's bad things that happen let's yes. let's throw that out there absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. but but overall artists do it for the joy mm -hmm. complex joy yeah well, yeah. thanks for that. Is there, I mean, so what are you doing now? Are you are you showing? Or are you you're librarying? I know that. I'm librarying, and, yes. And you're yeah. talking to me in, yes. this, in this studio. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Um, I am in the midst of writing my next one person show. Okay. But I'm also gonna try my hand. I, I've always written like essays or stories or whatever. So I have a Substack uh, that's gonna be launched on January eighth. Okay. Um, you can find out information on my Instagram, which is at sarah vb40 okay or on my website www.sarahweber1b.ca thank you so much for being here yeah it was great to be here thanks brent A massive thank you to Holly Gattery and Sarah Weber for telling their stories on the episode here. Both mentioned their contact info and other stuff, but I'll post it to the episode blog as well. Now you're a writer. I um, am. So you know all about the reviews, right? Mm -hmm. So um, 
What do you do when you get a bad one? I really want to say that I have this really like placid Zen approach. It doesn't bother me like water off a duck's back, you know, all of that. But they do. It's always a little bit of a bummer to get a negative review. It's worse when you get it from a sort of a reputable or a published or a bigger media thing than it is on Goodreads or Amazon. Um, Yeah, it's always a little disappointing. I I like to get to the point eventually where I realize that even a bad review is because somebody cares enough about reading and books Mm -hmm. to do it. And so... Yeah, I, I usually get there. It, it's great, you know. Um, I even had a, a at a book club once. Somebody just totally slammed the book mm-hmm. in person, live to my face. Wow. And although the initial reaction was "Whoa," I yeah, that person really cared about my book, mm-hmm. you know. Even if they didn't like that part, of, it was just a part of it that they just completely abhorred. So. Yeah, I can go both ways. I, I try to get to that gracious place in the end. But mm-hmm. if I'm really honest, if I'm human, you know, because I am. This is a human podcast. It is a human podcast. This is how we're going to prove to the AI overlords. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> actually, oh, that's interesting. I worded it that way. I should say we're going to prove to the actual humans that we are not subject to our AI overlords, that this is actually correct, real. Yeah. Um, I try to get there in the end, but it can hurt. Yeah, it's a particularly human response, right? Like you, you pour your you pour your creative uh, emotions out there for people to look at, and sometimes it doesn't go the way you want. But no, and you can't please everybody. Like I, I learned that very early on yeah. in my writing career. I write a certain way, and that doesn't connect with everybody, and that's cool. That's okay. totally fine. Okay, listeners, back to you. If you have a story, reach out through our website, social media, or email at rejectedcentral8 at gmail.com. The best stuff comes from you. It does. And you can be on the podcast either in person or remotely. Uh, We can read your stories. And you you don't even have to use your real name if you don't want to. We're not the BBC. (laughs) If you want to be anonymous and protect the people in your life, that's or you, that's totally fine. Absolutely. We're not out to embarrass you or anything. No, we're not. We're not. Thank you so much in advance for your consideration and your contributions. And as always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. So long.